your professional decline is coming much sooner than you think. That was the title of an article written in The Atlantic a few years ago. They captured an array of statistics and other analysis of people's overall sense of happiness and self-worth in relation to their career. But more specifically, the article highlighted how age, or the process of aging for that matter, it catches up to each one of us more quickly than we might realize. Uh, The author of this article, Arthur Brooks, begins the article with a personal experience on a plane and how it affected his whole idea of identity. And by consequence, it would change how he would view the rest of the time that he had on earth. The story goes like this. It's not true that no one needs you anymore. These words came from an elderly woman sitting behind me on a late-night flight from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. The plane was dark and quiet. A man I assumed to be her husband murmured almost inaudibly in response, something to the effect of, I wish I was dead. Again, the woman, oh, stop saying that. I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but couldn't help it. I listened with morbid fascination, forming an image of the man in my head as they talked. I imagined someone who had worked hard all his life in relative obscurity. Someone with unfulfilled dreams, perhaps of the degree he never attained, the career he never pursued, the company he never started. At the end of the flight, as the light switched on, I finally got a look at the desolate man. I was shocked. I recognized him, and he was and still is world famous. Then in his mid-80s, he was a beloved hero for his courage, his patriotism, and his accomplishments many decades ago. As he walked up the aisle on the plane behind me, other passengers greeted him with veneration. Standing at the door of the cockpit, the pilot stopped him and said, Sir, I have admired you since I was a little boy. The older man, apparently wishing for death just a few minutes earlier, suddenly beamed with pride at the recognition of his past glories. For selfish reasons, I couldn't get the cognitive dissonance of that scene out of my mind. But I had started to wonder, can I really keep this going? I were like a maniac. But even if I stayed at it 12 hours a day, seven days a week, at some point my career would slow and stop. And when it did, what then? Would I one day be looking back wistfully and wishing I were dead? Was there anything I could do starting now to give myself a shot at avoiding misery and maybe even achieve happiness when the music inevitably stops? You know, this all-too-common experience is just another good reminder for us, isn't it? A reminder that all earthly success, all financial security, and all fame and fortune, just like the milk jug in your fridge, they all have an expiration date. None of us are invincible. 
None of us are unbreakable, and none of us are indispensable. Uh, Sooner or later, someone's going to come along and be better than you in your job. More skilled, more energy, younger, better looking, brighter, and even if you live a long life with lots of accomplishments. Newsflash, we still all age. Now for us younger folks in here who are in the prime of life, just look at the pictures of your parents and grandparents when they were your age. Before you know it, you'll be right there as well. Friends, one day we not only age, that age catches up with us, and before we know it, we will die. No one's exempt from it. All of us will one day meet the date that has been determined and known only by God. One commentator has put it, the grave exposes the frailty, the insubstantiality of our humanity. With these things being true, I think every Christian at some point in their life reaches that place and wonders, am I really using the time God has given me on earth the best possible way I could? I mean, on the one hand, we all don't want to be so busy that we miss out on some of those precious moments of making memories with people we love. And yet, in the same breath, I think all Christians want to be busy doing the Lord's will in their life. I mean, if God's will is good and acceptable and perfect, as Romans 12 verse 2 says it is, we don't want to miss out on it, do we? By God's grace, we want to stay focused. We want to be obedient. We want to have tunnel vision to do the Lord's will in every season of our life. At the end of the day, every born-again believer simply wants to be happy and holy in Jesus. We want to be and do whatever purpose God put us on this earth to accomplish. Well, friends, as Christians, above all things, we should be most concerned with following Jesus in our life. And one of the ways we can know whether or not we are spending our time on the right type of busyness and the right type of idle uh, jobs or ministries is by first studying how Jesus spent his time on earth. So I think it's a good challenge for each one of us this morning who might become so familiar with Jesus that you'll miss something significant about Jesus. I think it's good to ask some questions about Jesus' life. Was Jesus busy for the sake of wanting to appear successful? Or was he busy doing his heavenly Father's business? As many of us face from week to week, How did Jesus respond to the tyranny of the urgent? What did Jesus say no to? What did Jesus say yes to? And friends, what were Jesus' priorities 
while he lived amidst our busy and needy world. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 488. Mark chapter 1. So far in our study on the Gospel of Mark, we've covered the prologue or the introduction to Mark's account of Jesus' life. We've covered those opening prophecies that were fulfilled in the person and work of John the Baptist. That's verses 1 to 8. And how John the Baptist prepared the nation of Israel for the arrival of God's anointed, the promised and long-awaited Messiah, the one John says would be mightier than himself. The one who would baptize repentant sinners for the forgiveness of sins, but not merely with water, like John the Baptist did, but with the presence and cleansing power of the Holy Spirit sent from God. This Messiah is Jesus. He came from the Galilean town of Nazareth. That's verse 9. We then cover those historically profound preseason events, if you will, to Jesus' public ministry. His baptism by John in the Jordan River, verses 9 to 11, and then his temptation in the wilderness and his subsequent prevail over Satan's fiery darts, verses 12 to 13. Last time we were in this book, we were introduced to Jesus' opening sermon series. As you clicked on the sermon podcast for Jesus, you would hear Jesus heralding this message, repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God's kingdom had been inaugurated in the arrival of Jesus, and God's mercy was now extended to all who would forsake their sin of unbelief and renounce their sin of self-righteousness. And as they turned from sin to God, they would put their faith in King Jesus and have eternal life. At the outset of his public ministry, we were also introduced to those young men that King Jesus would call as his first followers, his first disciples, His first traveling students, they were two sets of brothers who were both fishermen by trade. And according to Luke's gospel, they were probably partners in business together. In Mark 1, verses 16 to 20, we learn that their names were Simon and Andrew, who were originally from the village town of Bethsaida. And then there was also James and John. Uh, The latter two boys, the sons of thunder, were also known as the sons of Zebedee as they are commonly referred to in the Gospels. Zebedee apparently had a prosperous fishing business. As we can tell in verse 20, he had hired servants to work alongside his boys. He was fairly well-known in the region of Galilee. Nonetheless, these common and uneducated fishermen, and at least from the world standards, unextraordinary men, They were the first-round draft picks to join Jesus' team. These weren't well-seasoned, thoroughly educated older men, peppered with gray hair and wrinkles and a long job resume. 
No, they were probably in their late teens or early 20s with little life experience and very little education to show for it. But we read that when Jesus called to them, follow me, they gave up everything to follow him. Upon Jesus' summoning to now make them become fishers of men, they said goodbye to the security of their family business. They said goodbye to the comforts of what they had always known. Now, whether it be friends or family or simply knowing what life in Galilee would generally have looked like for many years to come, they left it all for something greater, as something of eternal significance. They left it all for someone who spoke the very words of life to them. They responded in faith. They put their faith in King Jesus for their future, their livelihoods, and ultimately their salvation. This morning, we encounter an example of what life and ministry would look like for Jesus and what his first disciples would witness as they're following him around the Sea of Galilee, as they come across this town of Capernaum, they would begin to witness, like a reality show on TV, what Jesus' public life and ministry would look like. In fact, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, if you read it really quickly, it's going to feel like probably one month's worth of work and ministry to us, but in actuality, it was about 24 hours for Jesus. Follow with me as I read Mark 1, verses 21 to 45. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent! And come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And the leper came to him, imploring him, And kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer open, openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's Word. Now, I want to invite you for a little classroom participation here. That means you need to say something or it's going to be really awkward for me standing on this stage. Based off what we just read, how would you describe Jesus' life in just a few words? Give me your best shot. How would you describe Jesus' life? Busy. Focused. Supernatural. We got some back row Baptists. What we got? Miraculous. Miraculous. I'll take a couple more over here on the right wing. Cat. Hands on. How about the center aisle here? We got, I think Charlie mentioned one. Anyone here? Authoritative. In great demand. Yeah, some I came up with is relentlessly busy. How about this one? Undesirably popular. Or how about high in demand, as Tom mentioned? Heavily dependent upon, or some of you are going to like this, an introvert's nightmare. If we simply summarized what a day in the life of Jesus looked like during his public ministry, here's what we can discover from this account in Mark chapter 1. He's teaching and preaching in the synagogue. He's being opposed by a demon-possessed man in a religious gathering. Indeed, he finds himself like pulling up weeds in our backyard, rebuking and removing demonic spirits one by one at will. He's ministering to Peter's 
mother-in-law. Peter's trying to score points with his mother-in-law, so he gets Jesus to come and hang out with him. Peter's mother-in-law had a debilitating, and according to Luke's gospel, probably a life-threatening fever. He's also found showing compassion as he's found healing an isolated and desperate leper. A leper who would have been totally alone. He would have been forced to live outside the community unless he was healed of this dreadful skin disease and given the thumbs up from the priest. He was sentenced not to 10 to 14 days of a quarantine from COVID, but he would be quarantined for life, ostracized, and all by himself till the day he died. But we also see Jesus in the midst of some of these snapshot moments. He's ministering to potentially hundreds of people from sunrise to sunset. But yet, here in Mark chapter 1, with the Jews still trying to adhere to the Sabbath day rules, hordes of people, listen to this, were waiting until sunset to find Jesus even after a long day of ministry. You ever had one of those moments? Long day, you sit down and wham, your phone rings or your email pops up and it feels like work's about to begin again. Jesus found himself in Simon's house, that same reality. At the door of the house that he was staying in, where people plagued with all sorts of diseases, illnesses, and lifelong handicaps. You see, these hurting people had heard a divine healer was in town. And many of them were probably at the end of their rope. I mean, think of it for a moment. Moms and dads bringing their boys and girls, their brothers and sisters. They're waiting in a long line. Some of them are probably weeping. Others irritable. Many angry, some scared and impatient, some excited and hopeful, wondering if somehow, some way, they would get to be touched by Jesus and be healed. Not to mention he was living with these younger, former teenage fishermen who were just trying to keep up with Jesus' busy schedule and figure out how on earth is he going to accomplish everything on his plate. Friends, I realize this might look and feel like a very foreign day of life and work to many of us. In this room this morning, there might be businessmen, lawyers, doctors, administrators, plumbers, teachers, students, and stay-at-home moms. And some of us might be retired. Some of us work part-time. Maybe your life today looks very different than it did 10, 15 20 years ago. All our weeks, all our responsibilities are going to vary from person to person in season of life to season of life. But in Mark chapter 1, we see that Jesus is not giving his disciples any kind of slow easing into discipleship. He's showing them something that we too need to be confronted with this morning. Jesus knew without a shadow of a doubt that the kingdom of darkness is real. 
We live in a world that thinks Christianity and the supernatural is a bunch of hocus pocus. But the greatest lie that Satan could get you to ever believe is that he doesn't exist. Friends, Mark chapter 1 is littered with examples of Satan's fingerprints all over our world. Demonic spirits, unclean spirits. Brothers and sisters, this is not a fake thing. This is not some kind of myth. Young kids, you will have students in your classes mock you for believing these things. But the fact they're mocking you shows they are deceived by the evil one. Friends, the schemes and attacks of the spiritual forces of evil are more real and present in your life than the person sitting next to you this morning. Friends, that means we, what we can see with our eyes isn't all there is to see. There is a supernatural cosmic battle that is raging on, and it's something that human beings cannot entirely fathom in our own strength. And Jesus also knew about the reality about needy people living in this fallen world. And that the closer you get to people, the more you peer into each other's lives on a deeper level, you'll discover that people from all backgrounds, of all ages, of all families, have all sorts of pressing needs and distressful problems. People have pain that plague their bodies, sicknesses that perplex their minds, demonic spirits that oppress their souls. But one of the things that jumps out in Mark chapter 1 that I don't want us to miss in the midst of all these exciting things is how precious Jesus viewed his time on earth. You've got to remember, Jesus lived a perfect life, right? And that means that Jesus never had a wasted day in his life. Some days he was so busy that Mark chapter 3 says his family thought he was out of his mind. And there were other days where he's just simply alone with his closest disciples. And then there are times where he's in a dense and heated conversation with hard-hearted religious leaders. Then every once in a while, you'll come across some text in the Gospels, like we will this morning, where Jesus isn't with anybody. He's alone. He's alone with his heavenly Father in prayer. Either way, on any given week, Jesus was thoughtful and intentional with his calendar. No one day in Jesus' life looked the same, but every day was fixed on pleasing his heavenly Father. So as we study Mark's gospel together, we ought to watch his life closely through the lens of one who always used his time perfectly with wisdom. So we should take note of the people he gave his attention to the most. The people he gave his attention to the least. And we should pay attention to how patiently he waited upon God's timing at every point in his life until his hour had come. Until the predetermined and divine plan 
to die on the cross for our sins would take place. If you're taking notes, here are two observations we can make about Jesus's stewardship of his time throughout his public ministry. Number one, Jesus entered into our busy and needy lives to reveal his authority over Satan and his authority over sickness. Jesus entered into our busy and needy lives to reveal his authority over Satan and his authority over sickness. Observation number two, Jesus withdrew from our busy and needy lives to reveal his kingdom priorities and his primary mission. Jesus withdrew from our busy and needy lives to reveal his kingdom priorities and his primary mission. First, let's follow Jesus together and how he showed his authority over Satan. Or as we'll find out here in Mark, Mark's gospel, he'll mention unclean spirits and then also sickness. You'll notice there, starting in verse 21, Mark says he entered into the synagogue as the guest teacher that Saturday or on the Sabbath day. At this point in history, the synagogue had become uh, the weekly gathering place where Jews typically studied the Old Testament scriptures on the Sabbath day. Uh, this was that day of rest where the Jews ceased from their ordinary labors under the Mosaic Covenant. It was also a day where God uh, was the focus of their life. It's where for 24 hours they would marvel at God as their creator and remember his saving mercies all the way back to the exodus from Egypt. Uh, but this time, the synagogue would be introduced to a guest teacher whose appearance would never leave that synagogue the same. Jesus opens his mouth. He begins to read and expound the scriptures. Uh, we're not told in Mark's gospel specifically where he was teaching from, but Mark wants us to focus not so much on the passage he's teaching from, as much as the reaction of those who heard him that day. Look what it says in verse 22. And they were astonished. It could also be translated amazed at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In other words, Jesus didn't teach and leave the pews filled with people snoring. He didn't leave them bored, making them, you know, have their minds wander about what they're going to eat for lunch that afternoon. No, when he opened his mouth, the mouths of his audience were left wide open. They were in awe. They were taken back. They were astonished, Mark says. You see, Jesus didn't have to quote from some other rabbinical sources or some other reputable scholars in his day. He didn't need a commentary. He didn't need John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, or anyone for that matter. Friends, when Jesus spoke the word of God, the word who is God was speaking. Friends, he's not just some itinerant teacher who was the next guy in line. He was God the Son incarnate. And when he opened his mouth, heaven thundered its voice. Friends, when Jesus spoke, listen, not only did everyone wake up, 
but his voice woke up the very living room of hell's devilish residence. Look at verses 23 to 26. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Well, so much for a smooth landing there, Jesus. So much for a uh, nice honeymoon phase to your public ministry. Just when everyone thought the synagogue was a safe place for God worshipers to gather, darkness was hiding in their midst. You see, a man came forward in terror that day. He walked the aisle, if you will. But when this man spoke, something else was controlling his tongue on that day. Do you notice what the unclean spirit in the man says to Jesus? Look at verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here, this demonically possessed man declares two significant things. Number one, the demon knows his own fate. He knows eternal destruction in hell has his name on it. And number two, the demon knows who Jesus truly is. He knows that he's truly man from Nazareth. He knows he's truly God as the Holy One prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He knows this is not just some itinerant teacher. He knows he's the Messiah. He knows that this is the one who will one day judge the living and the dead. He is the one with his elect angels that will cast Satan, his demons, and all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life into that eternal lake of fire. You see, the fact that this demon or unclean spirit uses the pronoun us, did you notice that? The singular spirit is speaking on behalf of a whole legion, a whole representative of unclean spirits. He's really speaking on behalf of Satan, the father of lies, the deceiver of the world, and all his fallen angels. This is that ancient serpent that we've looked at a little bit already in this gospel. Spoken of back in Genesis 3, who already knows his eternal fate. One day, as it's promised in Genesis 3.15, Jesus would come as the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. Earlier in Mark's gospel, who did we see Jesus face off with? He faced off with Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus resisted, he refuted, and he overcame the fierce temptations in this dangerous and vulnerable wilderness. Friends, when Jesus entered into Capernaum, he was stepping out onto the 50-yard line, and guess what happened? All the demons got really afraid. Friends, that's what happens 
when Jesus shows up. Either people get converted or demons tremble. Have you ever been sharing the gospel with someone? And they said something like this, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. I know who Jesus is. But when they said that, your stomach began to churn a little bit. It churned because you knew something, at least of what appeared to be a lack of any good fruit in their life. You begin to actually wonder if they really are a Christian. I mean, they seem orthodox in their confession. They can even share the gospel in the membership interview. But their life shows unbroken patterns of rebellion and disobedience to Jesus. There's no real love for others. There's no real evidence of confessing their sins and repenting of them. There's no real sign of ever putting Jesus first in their life. Every time they are around others, it's really life's about them. And Jesus gets the back seat. Friends, have you ever been put in that kind of situation? I know I have. I live in that as a pastor. Friends, just because you and me or anyone else for that matter can declare Jesus is Lord doesn't mean we're a true Christian. Now, it certainly starts there, and I don't want to take, any way, take anything away from that. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if your faith is of a childlike faith, where you're depending on the righteousness of Jesus alone for your righteousness, you are saved. You know the Lord. That's what makes you justified before him. But friends, Satan knows exactly who Jesus is, and he trembles before him. But Satan doesn't love Jesus, and Satan certainly doesn't love followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's why it's so important for Christians to join a biblical local church where brothers and sisters in Christ love you enough to point out sin in your life. Friends, we are all prone to self-deception. In order for us to bear fruit, good fruit, that is keeping with repentance, we must surround ourselves with people who love us but hate our sin. We should surround ourselves with people who love us but hate our sin. Listen, just because we can articulate the gospel intellectually doesn't mean our hearts have been transformed by the gospel supernaturally. It's got to get from the elevator of your head to transform your heart. James 2 says that faith without works is dead. Titus 1.16 says that there are those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The Apostle Paul then lovingly warns the Corinthians, and even us today, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Listen, if you're someone here today who struggles and lacks assurance of your salvation, you're just not really sure 
if you're a Christian. Well, my encouragement would be to you is to find another mature Christian who you can read the scriptures with and pray together. Or you can send me an email. I'd be happy to send you some resources that you can read to help you think more about how do you know that you are a Christian. Listen, if you're doubting your salvation, there really is no better place for you to be than under God's word in the fellowship with God's people. Listen, if you isolate yourself from the body, if I isolate myself from the body, we can begin to have all sorts of doubts. Friends, bring those doubts into the light. God will speak and his spirit will give us ears to hear what our good shepherd says to his people. Nonetheless, without any struggle, though, Jesus hits the mute button on the man's mouth. After convulsing and crying out, the man was brought to his senses. Uh, The demon clearly came out of this religious man on that Sabbath day. and He may have attended the synagogue for years. We're not exactly told here. But regardless of whether or not he was the charter member who helped start the synagogue, or he filled out a welcome card as a first-time guest, It appears from the passage that no one in the synagogue knew the darkness that was hiding in him. But friends, in time, they did when Jesus showed up. Friends, that's what happens when Jesus shows up in a church too. Powerful things start to happen and demons start getting exposed. I would venture to say that a church that properly begins exalting Jesus in all its ministries may see things get ugly before it gets beautiful. Let me illustrate. In the book of Acts, I'd encourage you to read through the book of Acts sometime to see how these early disciples took Jesus' mission serious. In the early church, the gospel was spreading. Good things were happening. Disciples were being made. But in Acts chapter 5, it says that Satan had filled the hearts of one married couple in the church. You might remember them, Ananias and Sapphira. And guess what Satan influenced them to do? Lie to God, and by implication, lie to the church. Well, right here at the outset, in the book of Acts, God is at work in the church, And Satan is at work in the church. What's going on in Mark chapter 1? Satan is at work in the synagogue, and God the Son shows up to do his work. What happened to that married couple in the early church? Well, God brought judgment on this couple. They were unrepentant, and the church lost its first members through an abrupt and frightful death. Now, if you stop right there, it would sound like, well, there's the end of the gospel. God struck people down. The church must be an utter failure now. Ananias and Sapphira might have been very well known. In fact, the Holy Spirit actually uses their names, probably insinuates they were well known in the church. Either way, Acts chapter 5, verse 11 says this, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And then again in Acts 5, verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. You can see this all throughout the New Testament. 
God is at work in his church, and Satan is at work in Christ's church. Read the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Anyway, here in Mark 1, we read about a day that started off pretty ordinary in the worship service, but it ended with a drama that they had never seen before. People are left in utter shock. The fact that a religious man who was demon-possessed was in their midst, they were also shocked at the power and authority that they witnessed from Jesus that day. As you would imagine, word got out pretty quickly, right? Again, there's no social media. There's no smartphones to record and post or send to other people. But word got out real quick. This obscure Jewish man from Nazareth suddenly hit the press as number one on the Galileans' most wanted list. Mark directs our attention quickly to Jesus' departure from the synagogue to a cozy living room of one of his disciples' mother-in-law. This is Simon, or Peter, as we'll know about him more later in the Gospels. Uh, Simon figured if Jesus could be trusted to leave his family fishing business for and to cast out a demon out of a religious man, surely he could heal this painful fever that my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, was enduring. But again, as Jesus would do many times in his ministry, just one word and one touch, and the fever was gone. Jesus could heal a person's fever quicker than Mercy Hospital could ever fathom. And Jesus could heal a leper whose skin condition left him in some pretty desperate waters. Look down with me in verses 40 to 44 real quick. And a leper came to him, imploring him, begging him. You can even sense the desperation, right? And kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity. Jesus was a compassionate man, right? He was compassionate towards the crowds compassionate to those who had been ostracized because of their own illness. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. You see, Jesus wanted to remain hidden from the masses, at least for a time. His, his hour had not yet come. But if Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds, he would have to act quickly before word got out, right? Though he could silence the demons with a word, as we see in verses 26 and 27, or even all the way in verse 34, it appears he could not keep the people the needy people who had, he, he had changed their life from telling others about him. They had witnessed his power. They had witnessed his healing. They had encountered the living God in human flesh. And they couldn't keep it to themselves. As verse 28 and verse 45 make clear, Jesus' popularity was growing rapidly. 
the likes on his uh, social media page were amping up. But if you read the passage closely, you'll notice that Jesus isn't looking for a crowd to follow him. He certainly isn't doing a very good job of promoting himself, building a website, getting the best billboard to advertise his arrival. But the more he heals, the more he casts out demons, the more people search for him. And they won't start, stop searching for him until they find him. In fact, look at verse 33. It mentions that the whole city, now I do think Mark's probably speaking hyperbole, I don't, I don't think 25,000 people were in front of this small house. But I think that's Mark's way of saying a whole lot of people were stammering and standing in front of that door. And guess what? They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to be healed by him right there. Right then. But friends, Did Jesus come to this earth primarily to be a traveling circuit healer? Was his main mission from his heavenly father to meet everyone's felt needs? Did Jesus see his time on earth as one gigantic ambition to keep everyone happy and pleased with him? This leads to our second and final observation about Jesus' stewardship of his time on earth. Number two, Jesus withdrew from our busy and needy lives to reveal his kingdom priorities and his primary mission. Look with me at Mark 1, verses 35 to 39. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it is still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. As a personal anecdote, when I was a freshman in college, I remember reading this verse, Mark 1, verse 35, and I thought to myself, I'm going to be like Jesus today. I got up around 4.30 or 5 in the morning, walked out to the front lawn of the campus, planned to sit under a tree and spend the wee hours of the morning praying. Well, after 20 or 30 minutes, I got a little cold. Didn't dress appropriately, apparently. I got really distracted, all the noises of birds and squirrels and whatever else was in Valdosta, Georgia at the time. Quite honestly, I got a little scared. I couldn't see anything. So I found myself praying very less and, and freaked out and paranoid and wondering if like, the police from the campus would find me. At that point in my life, I really wasn't that big of a morning person either. So you just put all these things together, it was basically a waste of time. I didn't accomplish much prayer. I went back to my dorm room, told a few friends that laughed at me, and most of the day I was exhausted. Well, forget my experience for a moment. 
What do we notice Jesus doing in this passage? I think we notice two very clear things, and I believe we can glean some helpful principles from Jesus' life to apply to our own. So point number one, Jesus valued private communion with his heavenly Father. Jesus valued private communion with his heavenly Father. Listen, what did Jesus do even after a long day of ministry and before another busy day of ministry would begin? Look at Mark 1 verse 35 again. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus who is the Son of God, spent quality time in solitude and prayer. How much more do we need to spend that type of solitude in prayer? Maybe you're new to prayer, and prayer is kind of awkward and hard right now. Maybe two to five minutes a day is a victory in your book. Listen, I want to encourage you, if your prayer life is struggling, listen, it's not the amount of time you spend in prayer that impresses the angelic host. Jesus stayed up all night in prayer in Luke 6, 12. I'm not encouraging us all to not sleep ever and just pray all the time. We'd be walking zombies if we did that. But I do think we see something in the life of Jesus And how Jesus prioritized focused, concentrated time in prayer to God. That's what's most important, friends. I've come to learn in my own life that when we as Christians aren't praying, we're probably straying. When we as Christians aren't praying, we're probably just a little bit by a little bit beginning to stray. Thomas Manton once said, the sweetest experiences of God's saints are when they are alone with him. Without seeking God often, the vitality of the soul is lost. Omit secret prayer and some great sin will follow. Well, Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, Pastor Blake, do you have any idea of what my schedule looks like? Do you have any idea of how many hours a day I work? How many young kids are kicking and crawling even on my lap right now? Trust me. I understand. And that's why I'm not giving a hard, fast rule for where to pray or how much time to pray. The Lord knows your lot. He knows your schedule. And he is compassionate where he has you. Maybe this funny example might encourage and even inspire some of you young mothers in here. Susanna Wesley, who is the mother of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, and Charles Wesley, that prolific hymn writer, raised a very large family and for many years found it virtually impossible to experience physical isolation. But almost as well known as being the mother of two influential sons, was her habit when she needed silence and solitude to bring her apron up over her head and read her Bible and pray underneath it. 
Obviously, that did not block out much noise, but it was a sign to her children for those minutes that she was not to be bothered and that the older ones were to care for the younger. So kids, if you're running around the living room and mom's got an apron over her head, she ain't going crazy. She just simply wants some peace and quiet to pray. So if you can entertain yourself, or whether that's dad too, whether he's got the blanket or a sweatshirt or a hoodie, that's the rules. Me and Jesus are going to the throne together. Well, the second and final thing we notice about Jesus' focus, and this is very important, was how he said no to some things in his life in order to say yes to more important things he was called to do which is number two, Jesus prioritized preaching the gospel over meeting everyone's felt needs and preferences. Jesus prioritized preaching the gospel over meeting everyone's felt needs and preferences. In verse 36, the original Greek, for all you Greek nerds in here, implies that Simon and his buddies literally hunted after Jesus. In other words, they were determined to find Jesus where he was hiding better than any hide-and-go-seek game you could ever come up with. And I get a kick out of what Simon says to Jesus. We're not told how long they've been looking for Jesus, but they're obviously searching high and low. I mean, could you imagine? They got their lanterns running through the woods. Jesus! Jesus is getting crazy up in her. Jesus, I can't do it. I love my mother-in-law, but she's getting stressed out. There's people at the door. We got to get some fish on the grill. People need to be healed. Demons need to be cast out. I'm getting scared. I've just been fishing. I don't know what to do. Jesus, verse 37, everyone is looking for you. Where are you at? Simon and his buddies they look at Jesus and they're like, Jesus, you're tired, you're stressed. Don't you realize you have a huge following? I mean, where have you been? Don't you want a crowd to follow you? There's so much work to do. Did you get my email? Did you get my text? Hey, did you know this was going on? Listen, we've got problems to solve. And Jesus you don't want to let these people down, do you? They're counting on you. You're the only one they can go to. You're not going to be rude and inconsiderate, are you? But notice Jesus' words in verse 38. Of all the things Jesus could say to his disciples who are learning how to follow him, of all the things, notice what he says. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Friends, Jesus cares about our physical ailments. Jesus cares about our mental stresses. Jesus cares about our temporal needs, like having enough food and water. Listen, Common grace, which is in our statement of faith, is a beautiful doctrine, isn't it? God makes the rain come down on the just and the unjust. God blesses us with modern medicine that can slow down and eradicate cancer. 
It can heal some of our most debilitating diseases and illnesses. And we praise God for all these modern things and God's common grace for our physical and temporal needs. But friends, we should all be very careful because there is false doctrine spread around in the name of Christianity that Jesus simply came to make this life comfortable for us. That is bogus. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. That is not the Jesus we sing about. Jesus did not come to be a glorified red cross, but he did die on that cross. Jesus didn't come primarily to be a sickness and disease miracle worker or to be a traveling counselor or therapist who sat down and listened to everyone's problems for 24 hours a day. Listen, Jesus certainly healed, and he showed intense compassion for needy people like you and me. But Jesus ultimately came to meet our greatest need, didn't he? Jesus came not to relieve us from temporary suffering. He came to deliver us from eternal suffering. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus would have you know this. He came to seek and save that which is lost. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know the Jesus of the Bible, you are lost in your sin and you're heading towards an eternal punishment in the lake of fire. But Jesus came to rescue us, to deliver us, to remove our self-deception blindfold and turn to him, to trust him, to be cleansed and forgiven of our greatest problem, which is our sin against a holy God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never wasted a day in his life. Every day was intentional to please his heavenly father. And in pleasing his heavenly father, he went to a rugged tree and he hung on that tree bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sin and he was punished, he was crushed under the weight of God's fierce and just wrath. But three days later, God raised him from the dead, overcoming the power of Satan, sin, and our last enemy, death. You see, today, the good news is Jesus came not to make your life here more comfortable. Jesus did not come to relieve us of all our physical or mental anguishes, but he did come to give us a peace that the world can't give us, and that's a peace with knowing God through him. Turn from your sins. Forsake all hope in any other so-called Savior and believe God loves you enough that he sent his son to die for you and to rise from the dead to you. And one day, Jesus is coming back. Friends, that's the good news. And that's the good news that he's given his church. The new covenant, New Testament, disciples of Jesus to proclaim. So members of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, if we want to prioritize what Jesus prioritized in our ministry, we must place preaching and teaching the word of God at the top of the list. Let me say that again. It's another thing churches get off. With good intentions, they want to meet all the temporal needs of people in their community. And there is a place for those type of mercy ministries. 
But friends, preaching and teaching is important because preaching and teaching is God's idea. God ordained that he will save his people through the proclamation, through the exposition, through the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul exhorted the Christians in Rome to think about in their ministry, to be mission-minded with the gospel? Romans 10, verses 13 to 17, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and who they have not believed? And how they are to believe in him and who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So CCBC, pray for the regular preaching of God's word to be marked with clarity faithfulness, and boldness. And pray for God to raise up more preachers in our midst that we can set apart and send out for the sake of Christ's name. And brothers and sisters, pray for all of us who are leading in some measure of a Bible study or a small group to minister the word of God faithfully and that God would bear much fruit from it. And friends, I also want to remind each one of us of another very important truth where Jesus, if you study closely throughout the Gospels, there are times in love he comes off insensitive to other people. As Jesus said no to Simon's legitimate plea for help, Jesus, we got all these people. They're looking for you. Some of them have traveled miles and miles to find you. I mean, think about what any of us would have probably done. We drop everything we're doing. We cancel a bunch of things. And we go and meet those tyranny of the urgent needs. And friends, sometimes we should. Sometimes we must. But sometimes we do say no. Or not now. Jesus models for us both as individuals and as a church that we won't meet everyone's needs. Because, beloved, we weren't supposed to do that in the first place. Friends, if Jesus didn't meet everyone's needs, then why should you or I have a messianic complex and think that we will? Last time I checked, there is no vacancy in the Trinity. I think the Father, the Son, and the Spirit got it all taken care of. Friends, this is a statement I want you to just kind of think about for a while. This is one of those that are going to go over some of your heads, but just think about it. The gospel is for everyone, but one individual or one local church isn't meant to meet the needs and preferences of everyone. The gospel is for everyone, but one individual or one local church isn't meant to meet the needs and preferences of everyone. So, brothers and sisters, by God's grace, CCBC will be made up of people who love Jesus and want to help others follow Jesus. Will we do this perfectly all the time? Of course not. 
But that is our intent because that is the mission Jesus gave his church. And insofar as members of this church can joyfully submit to the leadership of this church, as Hebrews 13, 17 encourages us, and support its teaching and ministry philosophy, then CCBC will be a great place where members meet one another's needs for God's glory and our good. But with all that said, Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church is not the church that will meet the needs and preferences of everyone. Friends, no local church that exists on planet Earth is called to do that. You see, the kingdom of God is much bigger than one individual Christian or one local church. And we should be content and confident that God will move us around in order to place us where he needs us to be, to serve whatever local church he wants us to be at for whatever season of time he determines. As Jesus understood his primary mission from God, I think it should shape how we view our time on this earth as well. Author Kevin DeYoung writes this, Jesus understood his mission. He was not driven by the needs of others, though he often stopped to help hurting people. He was not driven by the approval of others, though he cared deeply for the lost and the broken. Ultimately, Jesus was driven by the Spirit. He was driven by his God-given mission. He knew his priorities and did not let the many temptations of a busy life deter him from his task. For Jesus, that meant itinerant preaching with devoted times of prayer on his way to the cross. Do you want to use the time God's given you on this earth to the best of your ability for God's glory? Then follow Jesus. Look to his example. And may God give each one of us wisdom on how to stay focused on him no matter what job, what ministry, what family, or what suffering he may call us to bear up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have placed us on this earth and you have called us to be a light. You have called us to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, our world is busy and it is needy and it is complex and it is dark and it is demonic and it is twisted and sometimes it is very tiring. And yet, Lord, you show us through the person and example and ministry of Jesus that each one of us have time given to us on earth to use it and to use it well. Lord, give us each wisdom as we think about how to best steward that time. Lord, cause us to think well about the priority of seeking you in solitude in prayer. Lord, I pray we as a church would never lose sight of our top priority to preach and teach your word. And Father, we do pray that CCBC would be a place where we continue to learn how to better follow Christ together. And Lord, in your own sovereign timing and for your own purposes, if you move any of us to join another local church, I pray that we would see it as a win for the kingdom and not a loss 
Lord, we are just but one church, and your kingdom is massive. And so we do pray that you would build up your church, both here at CCBC and around the world, and here in the Fort Smith and Barling community. Lord, use us however you will for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.